So one of the best parts about being homesick from school when I was younger was that I got to lay on the couch drinking Sprite or ginger ale and I could watch movies all day. Uh, one of my favorite memories was the day that my dad was also homesick with me and we watched all three of the Back to the Future movies. Back to the Future was one of my dad's favorite uh, movies. On every sick day, I could look forward to time watching movies and relaxing. And of course, this was back in the 90s before the arrival of streaming services and DVR. And, and in those days, we had VCRs and VHS tapes. You remember those, right? We had an entertainment center that, was, that had a drawer full of blank VHS tapes that we could use for recording our TV shows and even some of the movies when they would play on TV. And my dad was sometimes tech-savvy enough to edit out the commercials on those movies that we recorded from TV. It was so cutting-edge at the time. One of my favorite ones that we recorded was the 1994 Disney movie Angels in the Outfield. I watched that movie countless times as a kid. And being that it was a family and children's movie, it was incredibly campy and corny. But as a kid, I didn't know any better. And I now have an in intense nostalgia for those 90 movies. So that movie, Angels in the Outfield, follows Roger and his foster home friend, JP. Roger and JP spend their days sneaking into the baseball games of the California Angels. The Angels are comically dreadful. They lose games about as often as their manager, George Knox, loses his temper. His constant outbursts of anger are born out of the, the bitterness for the hand that he's been dealt in life. And... It resulted in him living a lonely and isolated life. Roger is in foster care because after his mother died, his dad responded by all but abandoning him. In one of the first scenes in the movie, Roger asks his dad, Are we ever going to be a family again? When the angels win the pennant, his dad sarcastically responds before starting up his motorcycle and riding away. Roger, believing these words to be words of a promise lays in bed in the next scene and he prays for God to help the California Angels win so that he and his dad can be a family again. The camera pans up and the stars in the night sky flicker. The next day, Roger and JP have snuck into the Angels baseball game again and they're in the bleachers like usual, watching the, the baseball team play terrible as normal. When Roger suddenly sees a, a bunch of real Angels on the field helping out the, the baseball team, He's the only one who can see them. The, the baseball team wins the game in this sort of miraculous fashion because of the help of these real angels. It's Roger's ability to see the angels that inspires the hot-headed manager, George Knox, who, by the way, hates children, to keep Roger and JP around sort of as lucky charms, kind of a lucky charm kind of thing. And they are, um, and so they get seats right next to the dugout so that Roger can let George Knox know when an angel is around and and this miraculous thing starts to happen. The, the California Angels start winning games because of these real angels all around them. You know, balls go bouncing off in directions that defy the laws of physics. Pitchers throw faster than humanly possible. And home runs are hit by players that are the most unlikely of players to hit home runs. And all of this happens because of divine intervention. There are some really obvious and traditional miracles that take place in this movie. And all of this leads the angels to the championship game. But there's something else that happens amidst all of these angelic manifestations. Something that is just as miraculous. Because despite all of the winning that's going on, 
Roger realizes that his dad's comments to him weren't serious. And so in a court hearing, his dad gives up custody and Roger becomes a ward of the state. He's devastated and he really falls into despair for a moment. He gives up hope on everything that he used to believe in. But George Knox, the the quick-tempered manager who hates children, begins to uh, care for both Roger and JP. He invests time in them. He teaches them how to play baseball. He encourages them in a way that a father should. And you can see through the movie how Knox transforms from this lonely, isolated, bitter person into someone completely different. At the end of the movie, when the Angels finally win the championship, the the real miracle finally happens. And it wasn't Angels helping a baseball team win, and it wasn't the suspension of natural laws, but it was that Knox adopts both Roger and JP, and Roger gets the family that he was always looking for. Now, when I was a kid, I really liked Angels in the Outfield because I love watching those obvious supernatural miracles of Angels helping a a miserable baseball team win games and you know maybe because I grew up as a Cubs fan I was hoping that maybe there would be some angels who would help them, the miserable Cubs finally win the World Series but but I never paid attention to that more subtle miracle where Roger, JP and George Knox become a family that was always sort of the, the nice ending that wrapped up the story but really that was the point of the movie the point of the movie was Roger Finding a home, finding a family. Really the point of the story was was George Knox transforming from this bitter individual into one who could experience love and who had love to give. These subtle miracles hidden amidst the obvious ones. Our story from the Gospel of Mark today is known as the feeding of the multitudes, or the uh, it's the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels. Um, It's often been read as a story that's depicting a very obvious miracle. And we've often missed that more subtle one because there is a subtle and there is a a hidden miracle in the story. Mark tells us that the disciples, or as he calls them here, the apostles, uh, the sent ones, have returned from their missionary journey. That Jesus earlier in this chapter sent out the twelve disciples in pairs without extra food or money or shoes or clothes and they were to travel light relying on God's provision and the the hospitality of strangers as they go out on the same mission that Jesus did, proclaiming repentance, the the new way of life made possible by Jesus. And they had authority over unclean spirits, those forces that distort the good intentions of God in the world. And they've returned this morning to debrief with Jesus about their missionary work. Mark, in his typical brevity, doesn't tell us a whole lot of details about what happened on that missionary journey, but It seems like it was a success. They cast out demons. They cured many who were sick. Wherever they went, there were signs of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Hope for the dawning of a new age. But despite their successes, while they were out, news no doubt reached them about John the baptizer. You remember John, the wild prophet who wore camel's hair and subsisted on a diet of locusts and wild honey, crying out on the banks of the Jordan River about the Uh, arrival of Jesus. But John wasn't just baptizing people, he was also confronting the abuses of people in power. And his favorite target was Herod, who had taken his sister-in-law, who interestingly enough was named Herodias. So Herod took his sister-in-law to be his wife. 
Sexual misconduct is nothing new among powerful men, but neither is it new to have prophets who speak directly and bluntly against those sorts of political leaders. But all of that comes at a great cost. John is arrested and spends months in prison before he is finally executed. The work of ministry is vitally important. It's life-giving. It brings hope into the world. But these disciples are no doubt exhausted. They have just returned from their own missionary journey. And, and Jesus is no doubt exhausted as well, emotionally worn out over the grief from the loss of his cousin John. And so Jesus understands that he and his disciples aren't machines. That if they don't stop and rest, they're going to burn out. The human need is so great that they're not going to be able to take care of themselves so many were coming and going, Mark tells us, that Jesus and the Twelve couldn't even eat. No one can sustain that level of activity, not even Jesus, not even Mark's depiction of Jesus. Mark's Jesus, who is constantly going, constantly doing. And so Jesus says to them, let's go away to a deserted place. Let's rest for a while. I found a place for us to go on retreat, to pray, to rest, to eat, and to recover. So they try to sneak out by boat, but many in the crowds see them leaving. The crowds know where they're trying to go, so they hurry quickly on foot, and they, they beat Jesus and his disciples there. And so, so Jesus and the twelve dock the boat, expecting to find a quiet place of retreat and a place to renew their bodies, minds, and spirits. And instead what they find is a, a sea of humanity. Men, women, and children, the, the broken, destitute, sick, and possessed of Galilee, looking for healing, rich and poor, pious and sinner, wanting to hear a true word from Jesus about God's grace, forgiveness, and restoration, to hear about the arrival of the kingdom of God. Now, I can imagine that if I was in the position of Jesus and his disciples, I would have been rather crabby to see all of those people there when I was expecting some alone time. I'm an introvert, and I need alone time in order to survive. I need times of rest and recovery. If I had arrived and seen uh, 5,000 men, the story says 5,000 men, but it's probably fifteen or 20,000 people altogether, I would have hopped back on the boat and I would have rowed away. But Jesus has compassion on them. He draws deep from the well of compassion within himself and he finds just enough to care for these hungry and desperate people. The disciples, though, their energy reserves are gone. And who could blame them? They've been going and going for a long time. Jesus, it's late, they say. The sun is getting ready to set in the sky. There's nowhere really for these people to go and get food. Send them away so they can get something to eat. But Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. Now, I can imagine that the disciples were rather shocked. Their mouths were hanging open. They, they, they looked back and forth at one another thinking, is Jesus really serious here? You can hear their, their confusion in their voices as they say, we've been out here ministering to these people all day after we returned from our own missionary journey. And now you're expecting for us to, to pay for them to get something to eat too? It would take 200 denarii, 400 days wages to cover the cost of food. None of us have that kind of money, Jesus. Remember you called us, we're fishermen. We don't have that kind of money. Even if we pooled our resources, we wouldn't have that. And then comes that question that Jesus asks. How much food do you have? How much do you have? Now Jesus doesn't 
ask this question so he can set his disciples up so that he can perform a, a miracle in the traditional sense. He's not asking for a, a volunteer from the crowd so he can perform a, a magic trick. Jesus is telling them how much they actually have is enough to feed the crowd. Scholar Daniel Kirk says that one of the major themes of the Gospel of Mark is, is happening right here in the story. That one of the major themes in this, in this Gospel is that it's meant to show us what faithful human participation in the reign of God looks like. Specifically, the disciples are able to do all the things that Jesus does. They are able to feed that crowd. And Jesus wants them to see that possibility. The disciples, and perhaps we by the ways that we have traditionally been told this story, don't see that possibility yet. In response to this question, these disciples say, we have just five loaves of bread and two fish. And now we have a, a picture in our heads of what happens next. An image that looks like the, the movie that we had in, the in my house growing up of a very British-sounding Jesus. I don't know why Jesus is always British in the movies about him. Where Jesus takes the, the meager provisions, he lifts them up to heaven, and then there's a quick cut scene, and the, the baskets come back down, and they're spilling over with bread and fish. It, it's, a mirac it's a miracle in our mindsets because Jesus suspends the laws of nature and makes more bread and fish. He kind of makes them out of nowhere. But notice what happens in the story. All it says is that Jesus takes the two fish and the five loaves, blesses them, and gives them to the disciples who then give them to everybody else. There's no mention of a supernatural event where the fish and loaves are multiplied exponentially. Just that Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish and shares them with the crowd. Barbara Brown Taylor says that Jesus and his disciples are looking at the same thing. But it seems that the disciples in their exhaustion, in their weariness, have begun to operate out of a sense of scarcity. Scarcity that says there isn't enough to go around. I have to, to cling tightly to what I have. Early bird gets the worm. I have to hoard what I have because someday it might be gone. There isn't enough to go around. There isn't enough compassion. There isn't enough money. There isn't enough love. But Jesus, though, looking at the same thing, operates out of a sense of abundance. There is enough. Yeah, five loaves and two fish. That doesn't seem like enough. And yet Jesus sees a possibility. Jesus sees abundance. He says that there is enough. The crowds don't have to go away, but you, the disciples, can feed them. You can feed them and you can inspire them to acts of generosity. What I imagine actually happened in this scene looks a lot more like the story told by the Quaker theologian Parker Palmer. Uh, Palmer was a passenger on a plane that pulled away from the gate. It taxied to some remote corner of the, the field and it stopped. We all know that feeling. The plane stops and you look out the window and you see that you're not on the runway and the engines wind down and your heart sinks. The pilot comes on the intercom and says, I have bad news and I have some really bad news. The bad news is that there's a storm front out west and Denver is kind of shut down and We've looked out for alternatives and there seems to be none, so we'll be staying here for a few hours. That's the bad news. The really bad news is that we have no food and it's lunchtime. Everybody groaned. Some passengers started to complain, some became angry, but then Palmer said one of the flight attendants did something amazing. 
She stood up and took the intercom mic and said, Really sorry, folks. We didn't plan it for it to be this way, and there's not much I can do about it. I know for some of you this is a really big deal. Some of you are really hungry and we're looking forward to a nice lunch. Some of you may have a medical condition and you really need to eat. Some of you may not care one way or another, and some of you may need to skip lunch. So I'll tell you what I'm, we're going to do. I have a couple of bread baskets up here, and we're going to pass them around, and I'm going to and I'm asking everybody to put something in the basket. Some of you brought a little snack along, something to tide you over just in case something like this happened, some peanut butter crackers or a candy bar. And some of you have a few lifesavers or chewing gum or Rolaids. And if you don't have anything edible, you have a picture of your children or spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend or a bookmark or a business card. Everybody put something in the basket and then we'll re reverse the process. We'll pass the baskets around again and everybody can take what he or she needs. Well, Palmer said, what happened next was amazing. The griping stopped. People started to root around in their pockets and handbags. Some got up and opened their suitcases stored in the overhead luggage racks and took out boxes of candy and salami and a bottle of wine. Some people were laughing and talking. She had transformed a group of people who were focused on need and deprivation into a community of sharing and celebration. She had transformed scarcity into a kind of abundance. After the flight, which eventually did proceed, Parker Palmer stopped on his way off the plane, deplaning, that is, and said to her, Do you know there's a story in the Bible about, about what you did back there? It's about Jesus feeding a lot of people with very little food. Yes, she said, I know the story. That's why I did what I did. Now that's a miracle. No angels flying around a baseball field helping a lousy team win the pennant, but, a, but broken people becoming a family. No hocus pocus or abracadabra, no laws of nature being suspended, but a, a miracle nonetheless. A miracle of, of seeing abundance when there only seems to be scarcity. A miracle of enough. I think that this miracle story isn't some sort of magic trick performed by Jesus but it's a miracle of community, the miracle of sharing and generosity. The miracle for me is that Jesus blesses what's there and then gives it to his disciples, because it's not Jesus who feeds the crowd, but it's the disciples. And that act of generosity, that act of sharing, inspires everybody else to generosity. It inspires people to take only what they need. The miracle for me in this story is that in that deserted place where resources seem to be scarce, each person doesn't take more than they need, but ensures that their neighbor has enough. I know, that the, I know this because there are 12 basketfuls left over. It's a, a miracle of believing in enough. Uh, that's what's miraculous to me. Desperate people trusting in the, the gracious abundance of God. The church that I served when I was in seminary that served uh, meals to homeless folks, uh, they noticed that early on in their ministry when they would serve meals, they would allow people to take more than one helping at lunch or at dinner time. And they noticed that people were taking those seconds and thirds and they were putting them into their bag and holding onto them for later because they were afraid of having enough. They were desperate people and they weren't sure where their next meal was coming from. One of the things that this church started to do is that they started only allowed for people to have one meal at lunch or at dinner time, trusting that there will be enough, trusting that just as there was food for you today, there will be food for you tomorrow. The miracle of enough. 
The miracle of trusting in God's abundance. We don't need to hoard what we have like the disciples do. We don't need to take more than we need like the crowds demonstrate. There is enough. I say that every time we come to this table and receive the gift of bread and cup, that there is enough for you here. There is enough bread. There is enough love. There is enough grace. There is enough room for you here. Learning to trust that in a world obsessed with consumption, afraid of it all being gone, that is a miracle. Learning to trust in abundance where mindsets of scarcity abound, that's a miracle. Trusting in abundance in seemingly deserted places, that's a miracle. Trusting that I have enough so I don't have to be afraid of my neighbor taking my share. Trusting that I have enough so I don't have to take more than I need from my neighbor, that's a miracle. I heard someone say once that a miracle is just an invasion of normal. It's just an invasion of what is supposed to be. And so maybe our task is to normalize the idea that every person should have enough. To normalize the idea that people shouldn't be hungry, that people shouldn't be isolated, that the few shouldn't have an inordinate share of the resources so that the many suffer from lack. To normalize the idea of sharing and generosity, of ensuring that every person has enough. That question that Jesus asks, what do we have? It is always an invitation to a miracle, to participate in that miracle of enough. It's always an invitation to see God's abundance, to shape our lives around the extravagant abundance of God that is given as a gift to all people. And so, Greenfield, Jesus is asking us, what do we have? Thanks be to God. Amen.